What a beautiful song of worship and what a joy to sing together. One of the privileges that I have being up front is just to hear all those voices lifted up. And it makes me look forward even more to that day when it's 10,000 upon 10,000, innumerable almost, those who will be around the throne worshiping the Lamb. That prayer that we prayed has very much been my prayer this morning and this week that we would behold the Lamb, that as we go to the Word this morning, we would go away with a clearer vision of who Jesus is in all of His beauty and in all of His glory. Communion Sunday gives us an opportunity to focus on Jesus and to focus on the cross. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Communion often gives us a chance for someone else to preach, so Mitchell will be continuing his series in the Gospel of John, Um, but I'm grateful to be able to go to a different part of the Gospel of John this morning as we go into the Word. A number of you, hopefully, well, not hopefully, probably, a lot of you watched the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago. I did and enjoyed it very much, and some of you probably saw the commercial, He Gets Us. Uh, If you didn't watch the Super Bowl, you may have seen it over the last six months or so at various times, or it's even on billboards. It's an advertising campaign that portrays the very real human sufferings of Jesus Christ and says that because He suffered, He understands us in our very real human situation and, and simply seeks to attract people to learn more about who Jesus is. Now, I'm not here to evaluate the He Gets Us campaign, but a variety of responses certainly drew my attention, and I spent some time looking at them. Of course, some of the criticisms have to do with the amount of money that went into buying Super Bowl commercial time. And others of the criticisms relate to the political or the moral stance of those who funded these commercials. But the one that really has drawn a lot of my attention and that I have been pondering has to do with the the very nature of that advertisement and who Jesus is. And basically, an article that seeks to tell people, don't believe that. Don't listen to that. Don't be led astray by that. We know what Christianity is really about. And it delineates the various abuses and hurts that have been caused not only throughout history, but even in our day by those who claim the name of Jesus and says that's what Christianity is really about Don't allow yourself to think anything else. At first I was angry. No, that's not who Jesus is. But really, more than that, I am sad. Because we have to face the reality that many people in our world today, when they hear the word Christian, they think of hate. They think of hurt. They think of abuse. They think of hypocrisy. 
They think of scandal upon scandal that has been laid out in the press before us. They think about the abuse of religious authority for political purposes. When people hear the word Christianity, too often they do not see Jesus. Instead, they are turned off by what they have seen of those who claim the name of Christ. Jesus himself dealt with that question. Jesus himself had to say, I am not that. Come and see who I am. And he knew that when we see Jesus as he is, we will be drawn to him. That if we see Jesus as he is, we will see him as one who cares. We will see him as one who is good. We will find him to be one who is trustworthy and who will never let us down. One place where Jesus makes this so very clear is in John chapter 10. And Jesus starts out in John chapter 10 with words that are very familiar to us in a chapter that is very familiar to many of us. He says, very truly, I tell you. And at that point, we actually have to stop. Because at that point, we realize, wait a minute, we're dropping into the middle of a conversation. I don't know about you, but I kind of have ingrained in my mind the chapters and the verses of the book of John. And so John chapter 10, verse 1, is obviously the start of something new, right? Well, these words tell us, no, this is not the start of something new. In fact, whenever Jesus says, very truly, or in an older translation, verily, verily, uh, or perhaps you have read, truly, truly, I say to you, whenever Jesus says that, we understand that he is drawing a conversation to a powerful conclusion. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, what is this conversation about? There's another indication in these words that you can't read John chapter 10 without knowing John chapter 9, and that is he says, very truly I say to you, well, who is you? Who is Jesus talking to in this passage? He doesn't actually say in this verse who he is talking to. We have to ask ourselves the question and do the work of going back earlier in the conversation and finding who Jesus is talking to. Now, some of you have the modern NIV translation, and you're looking at it, and you say, no, he says it right there. Very truly, I say to you, Pharisees. Believe it or not, the NIV simply inserted that word Pharisees so that we would understand as we read who he's talking to. They did the work for us, but that is not in the original language. That is not in many of your translations. Jesus says, I say to you, and we ask ourselves the question, who? Well, he is talking to the Pharisees, and he's continuing a conversation that started in John 9. And so we're going to take a few minutes now to review all of John chapter 9, and I really hope it's not going to take us too long, but it's an astounding passage. In John 9, you have Jesus going with his disciples. They left the temple. They're walking along, and they see a man who was born blind. 
After some conversation, Jesus makes mud and rubs it on that man's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man goes and washes the mud off of his eyes, and he's healed. Some of his neighbors and people who had previously seen him begging look at him and say, wait a minute, isn't this the guy who was born blind? How can he be seeing now? And the guy says, yes, I'm him. And the others say, no, no, that's not him. That can't be. So they take him off to the Pharisees to see what happened. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. The Pharisees are the authority for the people. They are the ones who are responsible to teach the truth and to lead people in ways of righteousness. And so quite naturally, they take this man to the Pharisees in order to sort out what is going on. The Pharisees say, what happened to you? And he describes what happened, and this is where the Pharisees start to really get interested in this story. Because the thing is, all of this took place on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is the day that God set aside to be holy. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Honor the Sabbath. Set it aside particularly for the Lord. The Lord worked six days and rested on the Sabbath, and so you also should work six days, but do not work on the Sabbath. Well, the Pharisees kind of forgot about the root of the commandment, which is honor God on the Sabbath day, and got all wrapped up in the laws that they created to make sure that nobody would ever violate the Sabbath by working on that day. They had so many laws, laws about how far you could walk before it was qualified as work, the things that you should do the day before the Sabbath so that you could be certain that you weren't working on the day of the Sabbath. And in the mind of the Pharisees, Jesus did two things that were work. He made mud. Now, that seems kind of ludicrous, but that was work. In their eyes, Jesus was a lawbreaker because he made mud on the Sabbath. And he healed. Healing was a work. And Jesus did it on the Sabbath. And so for the Pharisees, it's very clear, Jesus is a lawbreaker. Jesus is a sinner. What's he doing working on the Sabbath? They had totally forgotten about the heart of God and what brings him the most glory, healing a man who was blind. And we're totally wrapped around a set of rules by which they determined who's in and who's out, who belongs to God and who doesn't. And they were very clear in their condemnation of anybody who in their mind was on the outside. However, some of the Pharisees were like, he really shouldn't be able to heal if he's a sinner. So we need to investigate what's going on. So they called his parents. They said, is this your son who you say was born blind? What happened to him? Why can he see? And the parents say, hey, we know he's our son. That's very clear. And we are absolutely sure he was born blind. It's been at least 13, 14, 15, probably 18 or 20 years that this guy had been blind. The parents had no doubt about it. But at that point, they step back and they say, 
but we really have nothing to do with the situation. Ask him. They leave him out to dry, and they do it because they're afraid. John explains to us that the Pharisees had already determined that anybody who followed Jesus as the Messiah would be kicked out of the synagogue. Jesus had already stirred up plenty of controversy by claiming to be the Son of God, by claiming God as his own Father, in fact, by claiming the name I Am for himself. And so the Pharisees knew very clearly that they wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and they were determined that anybody who had anything to do with Jesus would be cut off. We know the power plays. When those who are in authority sense that they are in a position of danger, they immediately start punishing anybody who goes astray. And so the Pharisees were were exercising their power and abusing the right of people to see Jesus for who He is and to follow Him. Well, to be cut off from the synagogue isn't just like being kicked out of a social club and you go on and say, well, fine, I'll just join another club. We know these days or we have heard about places where if somebody follows Jesus and turns away from the majority religion, where they are cut off. And being cut off means that you lose your family ties, you lose your business ties, you lose your entire social support network. You are truly ostracized and entirely on your own. This is what the Pharisees were threatening, a complete loss of livelihood, of connection, of friends, of family, of everything that you know, if you so dare as to follow Jesus. The parents wanted nothing to do with that. Hey, he's our son. He was blind. We don't know anything else. Talk to him. And so they call the man back, and they talk to him again. And they say, we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And he says, I don't know if he's a sinner, but I know one thing. I was blind, but now I see. He knew. He had seen Jesus, and he knew. But they didn't know. They said, tell us again what happened. And he's like, seriously? I've already told you once. Do I have to tell you again? And they say, lay it out for us. Where does this man come from? We follow Moses. We know where our truth has come from. We are the people who have the right and the authority. This guy, Jesus, we have no idea where he comes from. We have no idea what his basis of authority is. And the blind man, well, the formerly blind man says, this is incredible. You are Israel's spiritual authorities, and here you have a man who clearly has God's authorization because he is able to perform a miracle that nobody has ever heard of. He is from God. And so we pick up in John chapter 9, verse 33. 
where the blind man says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The Pharisees power up. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Not just out of their presence. They threw him out of the synagogue. They excluded him from the people. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So we come to the end of the story, and we have just a guy. He has no power, he has no influence. He's been a beggar all of his life. But he saw Jesus, and he believed. And he responded in the only way we possibly can. He worshiped. And as we come to the end of this chapter, we have the Pharisees who have been revealed for exactly what they are. They have shown their legalism. The only thing that matters to them is strict adherence to the laws that they had invented in the first place. They had shown their own hypocrisy, their lack of giving glory to God and instead seeking power and glory for themselves. They had shown their stubborn unbelief, their self-interest, and their cruelty. And they asked Jesus his evaluation of them. And so we come to John 10, where Jesus tells the story of the sheep pen. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from a stranger because they do not recognize his voice. The parable is fairly simple, but the key thing to understand is the nature of a sheep pen. It's a dangerous thing to be a sheep, particularly a dangerous thing to be a sheep in the ancient world. There are enemies all around. There is danger out there. There are wolves who seek to attack you and tear you apart. There is uh, the possibility of getting lost and being separated from the rest of the flock and from the shepherd and not being able to find pasture and starving to death out there. Out there is dangerous. The sheep pen is the place that is safe. And the pen has walls, and the purpose of the walls or it is to keep the bad things out and to keep the good things in. There's one gate into that sheep pen, and when the shepherd comes through the gate into the sheep pen, he calls the sheep by name. He calls black ears and mittens and white nose and 
And they actually know their names, and they respond to him. They know his voice, and they run to him, and he leads them out into pasture. The sheep also know that anybody who's coming over the walls is a thief and a robber. Anybody who's coming over the walls is doing it for self-interest, wants to abuse the sheep, take advantage of the sheep for their own personal gain. They know that they should avoid a stranger. They run away from a stranger, but they follow the shepherd. Jesus told this parable to make it pretty clear to the Pharisees who he was and who they were. But it's interesting, the Scripture tells us that they didn't understand the parable. And so then, Jesus uses two metaphors to lay out very plainly for the Pharisees and for everyone who listens what he is talking about. First metaphor, in chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever comes in through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. When Jesus describes those who came before him as thieves and robbers, he is saying, you Pharisees, you are the thieves and the robbers. He is outlining the Pharisees' entire unfitness to be pastors and spiritual leaders for the people of Israel. He is drawing attention to their self-seeking work, their desire to be out on the street corners, to be admired and looked up to and followed. He is calling attention to their pursuit of personal gain, to their abuse of their spiritual power for the sake of building up their own prestige and position of authority. He's saying that they are the thieves. They are the ones who have used and abused the sheep. They are the ones who have betrayed the trust that has been given to them. They are the ones who have deceived and manipulated and led astray. And of course, here we come to our day. Here we come to the fact that our world is filled with people who look at those who claim the name of Christ, but in fact see on television their money grubbing. They're enriching and engorging of themselves at the expense of the sheep. People look at those who claim the name of Christ and see manipulation of the name of Christ for the sake of building up political or personal power. They look at the scandals that we've already mentioned that have rocked the church, some people whom we have loved and admired and respected most of our lives and have demonstrated themselves to be devoid of holiness. Jesus says those are the thieves and the robbers. And the sheep know. We look at them 
at that emptiness, at that bankruptcy, at that betrayal of trust, and say, that's not worth following. The thing is, though, that Jesus says, that's not worth following, but I am worth following. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the way that you can trust. And I will never fail you. In verse 9, he lays it out more clearly. He says, those who come by me will be saved. Jesus does not define salvation here. But the sheep know that they need to be saved. We live with this general sense of anxiety and malaise, betrayed not only, by the way, by political leaders, uh, by religious leaders, but also by political leaders, betrayed as this man was by his parents, betrayed by so many people, not knowing who we can trust, but knowing that there's danger out there and we need to be saved. And Jesus says, come by me and you will be saved. He continues in verse 9. He says, they will come in and go out and find pasture. What a beautiful expression. Think about that sheep living in that dangerous world, but not having to worry about a thing. You can go out, you can come in, and you are safe all the way because the shepherd is there with you. And find pasture, satisfied in your very deepest needs. We need somebody that we can trust. We need somebody who will genuinely care for us, not out of self-interest, but simply because he loves us. We need someone who is looking out for our good. We need someone who will provide our needs. Go by the way of Jesus. You will come in. You will go out. You will find pasture. It's like we're given the image of Psalm 23. And Jesus says, here's the pasture. It's green. It's abundant. Lie down. Here's the water. It's clean. It's cool. It's flowing freely. Drink of it. That's what he offers those who go his way. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, not only will you find life in me, but you will find abundant life. You'll find life to its fullest. Now, we know that he's not talking about here about material possessions and an abundance of material possessions. Jesus nowhere promises that by following him, we are going to be rich. In fact, Jesus nowhere promises that by following him, we won't experience suffering. He promises the opposite. He says, you are going to suffer in this world. And how we suffer. We suffer loss. We suffer grief. We watched loved ones go through devastating illness. Persecuted by those who don't follow Jesus Christ, we suffer loss of reputation, 
or even livelihood. That's not what Jesus is talking about. In Psalm 23, he doesn't say he leads me around the valley of the shadow of death. He leads me through the valley of shadow of death, but I have life in abundance because I am with the shepherd who will never let me down. He cares for me. He guides me. He is with me all the way. The abundance of life that we have in Jesus is described in Ephesians chapter 1 where the apostle lays out every spiritual blessing which is ours in Christ. Chosen by Him before the foundation of the world. Loved by Him. Adopted as sons and daughters. Given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. The apostle goes on and on. Jesus describes that abundance of streams of living water that fill us up and flow from us to those who are around us. The Holy Spirit is the abundance that we can experience in this life. Jesus says, come by me, and you will be saved. You will be safe, and you will be satisfied. He then goes on to another metaphor. At this point, an editor says, wait a minute, no mixing up metaphors. And Jesus says, I can mix up metaphors because I am. (laughs) I am the gate for the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. I am the one that you can trust. I am the Savior that you can love. John 10, starting in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. He runs away. I mean, then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep know me. And I know them just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So Jesus goes from being the way that we can trust to being the shepherd who is good. The shepherd who we can love. There are so many rich truths in this passage. We're only going to touch on a few of them because they define for us the love of the Savior for us and therefore how we can respond to Him in love. First of all, Jesus says that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And here we come to Jesus saying, what is the salvation that He is talking about? Among all the needs that we have mentioned to this point, the need for a Savior is the most basic of every human need. Because of our sin, we are separated from our loving and holy God. And we are doomed because of sin to eternal judgment and to condemnation, cut off from the hope and the glory that awaits us When we come to the communion table this morning, we are coming to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is that Savior who laid down His life for the sheep. The bread that we partake indicates the broken body of Jesus Christ 
The cup from which we drink indicates his blood that was shed for us. See, this Jesus who in John chapter 10 said, I am the good shepherd, is the same Jesus who would go to the cross at the end of the book of John and lifted up on that cross, the cross that a thief and a robber deserves. Jesus who was good. Jesus who had committed no sin. Jesus who deserved no judgment or condemnation. On that cross, accepted upon himself our sin. He who knew no sin became sin in our place. He who deserved no condemnation bore the full wrath of God poured out on him. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. And not just for any sheep, for you. Who longs for a Savior. Who longs for a place where you can finally be safe. Who longs for those deepest needs to be satisfied. He went to the cross for your sake. He bore God's wrath in your place and in mine. He died so that we could have life. He rose from the dead to demonstrate that God had accepted that sacrifice. And now the way is open. He is the gate. We can go through Him and be saved and be safe, and be satisfied. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd guards the sheep, Jesus says in this passage. The hired hands, that's the Pharisees. The hired hand really has no interest in the sheep. The hired hand has interest in his own well-being. Jesus is the one who guards the sheep. Jesus is the one who cares. Jesus is the one who is there when you need somebody that you can rely on. He then goes on to say that the good shepherd knows his sheep. And he describes the perfect and intimate relationship that the father and the son share together. And their perfect knowledge of each other. And he says that that kind of loving knowledge that is the knowledge that he has for you and for me and that we can have for him. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. He can know us perfectly and somehow still love us. And being loved by him unconditionally, we can then respond to him lovingly. Then skipping way ahead, Jesus not only lays down his life for the sheep and guards the sheep and knows the sheep, but Jesus keeps the sheep. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That is a way that we can trust. That is a Savior that we can love. 
Our response this morning is, first of all, the same response of a blind man. 13, 15, 18, 25 years. We don't know how many he was caught in darkness. But one day Jesus came and opened his eyes. And when that man saw Jesus, he knew who he could trust. And he said, Lord, I believe. May that conversation that Jesus had with that man, may that be our conversation with him this morning. If you do not know that loving, caring, trustworthy Savior, this morning he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? Show me so that I may believe in him. You have seen him. Lord, I believe. Don't look to those who have failed. Don't look to those who have betrayed. Don't look to anyone but Jesus because anyone but Jesus at some point will absolutely let you down. Look to the Savior whom we can trust and who's worth following and loving. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this morning we need to see Jesus. I cannot know the pains or the disappointments that each one has experienced. But you do. You are the God who sees. You are the God who knows. You know what we've been through. You know what may have hardened our hearts. and caused us to delve deep into bitterness. You know the extent, the depth, and the darkness of our sin. But you invite us to come. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would move this morning to open eyes that have been in darkness and to help us to see Jesus and to run to him, to lay before you our sin and our need and to receive from you living water, green grass, calm pastures. Your gift of life, of peace, of hope, and of holiness that can only be found in Jesus.
in whose name we pray, amen.